Chapter 8 of Survivor's Tales of Famous Crimes. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Survivor's Tales of Famous Crimes, edited by Walter Wood. Chapter 8 Palmer's Poisonings. In the whole of modern British criminology, there is no more appalling character than Dr. William Palmer, the Rugely Poisoner. He was a notorious evil liver, an extensive forger, and a wholesale murderer. The late Mr. Justice Stephen said of him, quote, No more horrible villain than Palmer ever stood in a dock. End quote. Palmer was convicted of the murder of a man named Cook, and was hanged outside Stafford Jail on June 14, 1856. But he was indicted for two other murders, and it is known that he had committed at least eleven of these terrible crimes, his victims including his wife and four children, all the infants dying within a few weeks of birth, and suddenly. Practically a life study has been made of the Palmer case by Dr. George Fletcher, J.P., whose story is narrated. I paid my first visit to Rugeley when I was a schoolboy fourteen years old, and walking from the station I passed a fine house with a garden fronting on the road. A number of trippers had come into Rugeley from the adjacent black country, and they stared hard at this particular building, for it was the house in which Dr. Palmer had been born. As we looked at the house, a woman, evidently the mistress, came out and walked to the garden gate near us, and, speaking with an extraordinary amount of pride, she said to us, well, I'm Mrs. Palmer, the mother of Dr. Palmer, and I'm not ashamed of it. The judges hanged my saintly bill, and he was the best of my whole lot. It was a dramatic incident, and I have never forgotten it, nor have I forgotten seeing John Parsons Cook, for whose murder Palmer was hanged. Cook came to Bromsgrove, where I lived, shortly before he was murdered, and I remember him playing cricket for the town club. From those early and distant days I have maintained a constant interest in the case, which has no parallel in medical jurisprudence. My former partner, Dr. Forshall, soon after he qualified, went to Rugeley as assistant to old Dr. Bamford, who was so closely associated with the Palmer case. Palmer was then in practice at Rugeley, and my partner often saw him, and said that he was clever at his work, but was an idle, loose character. It is difficult to avoid exaggeration in speaking of Palmer, but Mr. Justice Stephen did not overstate his character. Palmer was a cool, callous, calculating poisoner of the most inhuman type, and his name will be handed down to posterity, in legal and medical circles, as the greatest and most cruel murderer that England has ever known, a man for whose blood all Britons clamored, and whose awful guilt not a soul doubted. His trial and condemnation caused an upheaval in the world of medical jurisprudence, and though more than half a century has passed since he was hanged, yet the small town of Rugeley in Staffordshire is still associated with the name of Palmer, who was born there, was educated at the grammar school there, and for eight years was in full practice in the town as a doctor. Owing to his profession, he was able to carry on his murderous work free from suspicion, until his victims numbered about eleven, then he overreached himself, and finally was led to his doom on the gallows outside Stafford Jail, 
where a friend of mine saw him hanged. Palmer was a marvelous man, and in order to estimate his character, something must be said of his antecedents. His father, Joseph, was an entirely self-made man, first a woodcutter, then a sawyer. When earning a pound a week on the estate of the Marquis of Anglesey, he came across Sarah Bentley, a young woman from a very low slum in Derby, where her drunken mother lived an idle life. The Marquis's agent was paying his addresses to Sarah, and she might have made an excellent match, but the coarse, low sawyer took her off to a local fair and married her before they returned home. The steward continued to pay attentions to Sarah, notwithstanding her marriage, and while he was carrying on this intrigue, Joseph set to work and robbed the estate very heavily of its best trees, plunder at which the steward connived. There was little cause for wonder, then, that when Joseph died suddenly in 1836, he left the large fortune of 80,000 pounds, a widow with a terrible character, the woman I saw at the gate of the fine house at Rugeley, and two daughters and five sons, of whom one, William, then not quite twelve years old, was to achieve lasting notoriety. Coming from such a stock, Palmer was heavily handicapped at the very start, and an old schoolfellow of his, whom I saw not long before his death, told me that the lad was thoroughly bad. He had unlimited pocket money, but squandered it all, and when he wanted more, he got it by the simple process of rifling his sister's dresses and purses at home. From school, Palmer was apprenticed to a Dr. Tilecoat of Haywood, where he met Annie Brooks Thornton, a loyal woman who was to endure many agonizing experiences before she herself fell a victim to the poisoner. It was not long before Palmer was compelled to leave Haywood in deep disgrace. He was then only twenty years of age, but it is believed that already he had murdered his first victim, a man named Abley, whom he was treating to liquor. Abley died half an hour after drinking his last glass of brandy, and at the inquest it was shown that Palmer had evinced far too much admiration for Mrs. Abley. After walking Stafford County Hospital for a few months, Palmer went to London, and entered St. Bartholomew's Hospital as a student, taking his MRCS in 1846. In October 1847, he married Annie Brooks Thornton, and in October 1848, their first boy was born. After qualifying, Palmer returned to Rugeley, and there he practiced for a few years and could have done well, but his innate depravity made it impossible for him to go straight in any way, and his love for the turf drove him to the utmost extremity for want of money. By 1853, he owned sixteen racehorses, and had a regular stud two miles from home on the edge of Canic Chase. An almost inevitable thing happened. Palmer got into serious financial difficulties, and very soon disposed of eight thousand pounds drawn from his mother, left to him by his father, to become due to him at her death, and nearly two thousand pounds more which he had obtained from her. He was so badly cornered by bills and acceptances that he was forced to go to the money-lenders. In 1853, he raised two thousand pounds on a bill which bore the acceptance of his mother. This acceptance was forged, and the unwilling instrument employed was the gentle wife, who was forced to sign the mother's name at Palmer's bidding. By means of forging his mother's name, 
Palmer continued to raise money. In 1854, he owed one Birmingham money lender 8,000 pounds. Then he fell into the clutches of a notorious bill-discounting bloodsucker named Pratt, a London lawyer, and from that time began the downfall which ended with the ignominy of the gallows. In due course Pratt gave evidence, and I was told by one who was in court that it was terrible to hear his testimony, given in a mercilessly cold voice, and to see how each letter read in court had driven Palmer to more and more awful steps to avoid utter ruin and detection of his forgeries and robberies, the latter now totaling the great sum of twenty thousand pounds. Pratt admitted discounting the bills at sixty per cent, and insisted on interest being paid monthly. This, then, was the state of things. A man of terribly vile character, with bills in the hands of discounters to the extent of twenty thousand pounds, to all of which his mother's name was forged, drifting more and more into loose company, and entirely neglecting his practice. Money, and plenty of it, was absolutely essential, and so Palmer proceeded to get it by the most infamous of all methods, the deliberate murder of his own family, relatives, and friends. His first victim was his mother-in-law, Mary Thornton, a woman who had never married, but had been housekeeper for thirty years to Colonel Brooks, a member of one of the Staffordshire families. Gentle Annie, as Palmer's wife was called, was Mary Thornton's illegitimate daughter. The old colonel had left his housekeeper several good houses in Stafford, and three thousand pounds in cash, all of which Palmer understood came to Annie on her mother's death. Annie, on her wedding day, received five hundred pounds from her mother, who, a year after, gave her one thousand pounds. Palmer was then hard up, and he soon borrowed five hundred pounds more from his mother-in-law. Despite her strong objections, he persuaded her to come and live with them. The woman must have known something of the real nature of the monster, for she declared to friends in Stafford, I know I shall not live a month. Nor did she, for Palmer poisoned her. A mysterious illness with unaccountable symptoms set in, and old Dr. Bamford was called in. The woman died and was buried in Rugeley Churchyard, where I copied from the tombstone, quote, Sacred to the memory of Mary Thornton, late of Stafford, who died 18th January, 1849, aged 50 years, quote. She was the first known victim of Palmer to find a sepulchre there. The next victim was a bookmaker named Bladen, who was with Palmer at Epsom. Bladen won 500 pounds in bets, and Palmer lost heavily to him, four hundred or five hundred pounds. At Palmer's urgent invitation, Bladen returned to Rugeley with him, and the doctor promised to drive Bladen to see a brother of the bookmaker at Ashley, twenty miles away. Writing to his wife, Bladen said that he had over six hundred pounds in his money belt, and was going to Rugeley with Palmer, who must pay him over four hundred pounds. So expect me home in three or four days, wrote Bladen, with one thousand pounds in hand. The day after Bladen reached Brugely, Palmer's hateful evil genius, a disreputable lawyer named Jeremiah Smith, drove him over to Ashley and back. That was on a Wednesday, and on the evening of that day Bladen was taken ill, a circumstance which was attributed to the long drive. On the Friday, Dr. Bamford was called in, and told Bladen his illness was due to too much port, this being the explanation given to him by Palmer and Smith. 
On the Saturday, a friend, Mr. Merritt, on his way home from Chester races, found Bladen so ill that he summoned Mrs. Bladen. She hurried down on the Saturday, but only just in time to see him alive and unconscious. He died very soon after her arrival, and was screwed down without his wife having seen him again. The funeral was hurried, and Bladen was buried in Rugeley Churchyard, where I copied from a slate tombstone on the right main path leading to the south door, the inscription, quote, In memory of Leonard Bladen, of Ashby de la Zouch, who died May 10, 1850, aged 49 years, end quote. Palmer offered to pay the funeral expenses, which the widow thought at the time was most generous of him. But she said she was anxious to have her husband's papers, and asked for the money belt. This could not be found, nor could Bladen's betting book. Mrs. Bladen grew suspicious, and she was actually about to sign an acknowledgment that her husband owed Palmer seventy pounds, when by chance, reflected in a mirror, she saw an extraordinary expression on Palmer's face. No, said Palmer, chatting pleasantly, I never owed poor Bladen a penny. What, never? she exclaimed. Why, I saw a letter of yours last summer in which you asked for more time to repay two hundred pounds you had borrowed. She refused to sign and left the house. Palmer had now started on that career of deliberate poisoning which is almost inconceivable and is certainly without parallel in modern times. According to the marriage settlement, if his wife should have a son, the child was provided for. A boy was born. If there should be more children at the time of Mrs. Palmer's death, they were to inherit the bulk of what she possessed. Others were born, and of course they must not live, for if they survived the wife, Palmer would get so little. And so it happened that a little girl and three little boys all died somewhat suddenly within a few weeks of birth, and I have copied their names and ages and dates of death from the register of burials at Rugeley Church. Later on the manner of the death of these children was fully known, and it was known also that three of Palmer's illegitimate children, by his servants, were poisoned by him. Even then there were ugly rumors afloat, but for the gentle wife's sake no one stirred to take serious action. Soon this devoted, long-suffering soul, who was only twenty-seven years old, was to die a lingering death. Palmer insured her for the large sum of fifteen thousand pounds. He paid only one premium of four hundred fifty pounds, and then she died. Yet the insurance company paid the fifteen thousand pounds without question. So successful was Palmer in this case that he tried to insure his brother Walter, a dissolute drunkard, for eighty-five thousand pounds, the yearly premium to be thirty-five hundred pounds. He did not succeed in this, but he did manage to carry through a policy for fifteen thousand pounds, and paid one premium. He gave his brother one hundred pounds to buy drink with, and hired a servant, in those days called a bottle-holder, to ply him with liquor, so that in a very few weeks Walter was a besotted imbecile. But even this was not quick enough, and Palmer poisoned his brother with prussic acid. But the doom which he so rightly merited was near at hand, and there was being built up against him a mass of evidence from which there was to be no earthly escape. The insurance offices became suspicious, a man dressed like a farmer, but in reality an astute detective, reached Rugeley, and as the result of his and other inquiries, 
the insurance office denied to pay the policy on Walter Palmer's death. About this time, Palmer met Cook, for whose murder he was subsequently hanged. Cook was intended for the law, but just as he was qualified he took to the turf, for at the age of twenty-one he had come into a fortune of fifteen thousand pounds. Cook was a splendid cricketer, a first-rate oar, and a good all-round man. When at Worcester races, he stayed several times at Bromsgrove, where I was born and lived till I was nineteen years old. Many friends, my mother amongst them, begged Cook to give up the turf, and in his genial way he promised that he would. But he came across Palmer, who began at once to drag him down. Palmer and Cook attended races together, and Cook had backed bills for the doctor. On November 13th, the two went to Shrewsbury races, where Cook's horse, Polestar, won the handicap, and Cook came into possession of a considerable sum of money. That sealed his doom, for Palmer, utterly cornered by the bloodsuckers into whose clutches he had fallen, was determined to have it. When he got back home, he found final threats from the money lenders, threats which, if carried out, meant exposure of his forgeries of his mother's name for over twenty thousand pounds. This exposure was kept off only so long as Palmer paid the monthly interest of sixty per cent. Failing in that, a long term of imprisonment stared him in the face. There also waited him a letter from a woman he had ruined, one of many, threatening to expose him if he did not send her one hundred pounds, of which she was in the greatest need. So we see that a few hundred pounds in ready money were wanted at once to keep off ruin a little longer, and Cook, by winning the Shrewsbury handicap that day, had come into one thousand one hundred pounds in ready cash, while at Tattersall's on the following Monday he would receive two thousand pounds more. Palmer's mind was now thoroughly made up as to what he would do, and that was, take Cook's life and get his money. Returning to Shrewsbury on the Wednesday, he rejoined Cook, and with others they were making merry in a sitting-room at the Raven. On a pretext of ordering more brandy, Palmer left the room and went to a sort of pantry, lit by gas. This was about half-past ten o'clock at night. A Mrs. Brooks, described as a lady who attended races and employed several jockeys, went to see Palmer about the morrow's races, and she saw him in the pantry, which was separated from the passage by a glass partition. He was holding up a tumbler to the gas, and was dropping something into it, then shaking the tumbler to see the thing dissolve, and dropping a little more. When Mrs. Brooks spoke, Palmer must have been taken aback, but he kept his presence of mind and said, I will be with you directly. He put the tumbler down and joined her, and after remaining in the passage a few minutes, talking, he returned to his boon companions. Presently tumblers and more brandy were brought in, and Cook was persuaded to have more liquor. He took some and exclaimed, Why, it's burning my throat! He left the room accompanied by a bookmaker named Fisher and George Herring, who became a famous millionaire philanthropist and died not long ago. Going to his bedroom, Cook said, I believe Palmer has drugged me. A doctor was sent for and prescribed, but Cook was so much alarmed that he took off his money belt and gave his cash, eight hundred pounds in notes and gold, to Herring. Next day Cook was on the course looking very ill. Herring returned the money, and Palmer and Cook went back to Rugeley, 
cook going to the Talbot Arms, exactly opposite Palmer's house. Next day he dined with Palmer, and returned to his hotel very sick and ill. No good purpose would be served by entering minutely into details of the few terrible days which followed, days during which Palmer, while being assiduous in his attentions to Cook, and apparently doing his utmost to preserve his life, was callously encompassing his death. Nearly everything that Cook took contained antimony, a mineral poison which was found in every tissue of the body when the post-mortem was made, showing that it had been administered over a long period. As usual, poor old Dr. Bamford was called in, a practitioner now eighty-two years of age. He listened to all that Palmer had to say, and shook his head and prescribed, but there must by this time have come into his mind some suspicion of the awful truth. He must have gone back in his memory to many of the cases of death with which Palmer had been concerned, and surely there must have grown within him a strong suspicion that all was not well with the poor young fellow who was suffering so acutely in his bedroom at the Talbot Arms. On the following Monday Palmer went to London, and in some rooms which he frequented off the Strand, he saw George Herring. He undoubtedly meant that Herring also should become a victim, and he asked him to take some wine. But Herring bluntly refused, and said afterwards that he suspected the man and never could tolerate him. Herring left, and there was no hope whatever of Palmer escaping arrest for forgery unless he got rid of Cook and obtained his money with which to pay the overdue and monstrous interest. By means of a forged letter, he received through Herring all Cook's bets and stakes at Tattersall's. He had also stolen Cook's betting book, and before leaving Rugeley for London, he had managed to steal the eight hundred pounds from Cook's money belt. Palmer hurried back to Rugeley, bought three grains of strychnine from Newton, a chemist in the place, and went home. The prosecution urged that Palmer made up two pills containing the strychnine, and hastened to the Talbot Arms, where he met the villainous Jeremiah Smith in the hall, and went upstairs to see Cook, who was much better, as well he might be, his murderer having been away. Palmer gave him the pills which he said Dr. Bamford had sent, but as a matter of fact, he had made up those strychnine pills, and had substituted them for some pills which Bamford had actually prepared. Palmer and Smith wished the doomed man good night, and at about midnight Cook was left alone. Very soon he rang the bell, and the chambermaid answering it found him in agony, racked with pain and writhing and twisting his body about. He begged that Palmer should be sent for, and Palmer came. About four o'clock the house, which had been roused, settled down somewhat, for the patient was quieter. Palmer had given him some brown stuff and was left in charge, sleeping in a chair near the fire. Early next morning, as Cook had survived the strychnine, Palmer went to the other chemist in Rugeley, Roberts, and asked for three different poisons, strong laudanum, prussic acid, and six grains of strychnine. Whilst Roberts was putting these up, Newton came in, greatly to Palmer's consternation, and as soon as Palmer had gone, he asked Roberts what he had bought. And though Newton did not then disclose the fact of the previous night's purchase, yet this became an important link in the chain of evidence. At noon, a great friend of Cook's, Dr. Jones, from Lutterworth, arrived, Palmer having asked him to come, saying that Cook had had a bilious attack. 
the three doctors, including Bamford, had a consultation, and Cook said, Now mind, Bamford, no more of those dunned pills tonight. They racked me with the pains of hell last night. No more pills for me. On going out to the landing, Palmer said, Those pills are best for him. And it was agreed that Bamford should make up a couple of morphine pills. Palmer accompanied the old man and watched him make the pills up. At his urgent request, Bamford wrote directions on the outside, so that when Cook refused to take any more pills, Jones was able to say that the three doctors had agreed that the patient should have them. Jones, of course, never suspecting that Palmer substituted two strychnine pills for the morphine preparations. "'Very well, I'll swallow them,' said Cook resignedly, and having done so, Palmer walked across the street to his house, and Jones went to supper in the coffee-room. In half an hour he went back to the bedroom, having arranged to sleep in a second bed. Not more than a few minutes had passed when Jones was awakened by piercing shrieks and cries that Palmer should be summoned. Palmer was sent for, and he answered the frantically pulled bell by appearing at the window of his bedroom. "'I never dressed so quickly in my life,' he told the maid who fetched him, and he repeated the remark to Jones, who thought he must have slept in his clothes. The truth was that Palmer had neither undressed nor gone to bed. He was simply waiting for the summons, which he knew must swiftly come, to attend the death of Cook. In less than a quarter of an hour all was over, and the contorted features and terribly twisted frame of the victim showed what a cruel death he had died. With monstrous but understandable haste, Palmer sent for a charwoman to lay the body out, and told Dr. Jones to go down and get a meal. The housekeeper, unexpectedly entering the room of death, saw Palmer searching the pockets of Cook's coat, and when Dr. Jones went upstairs, he saw Palmer hunting under the pillow where the dead man's head was resting. "'Ah, Jones,' said Palmer calmly, "'I'm looking for his watch and purse. Here they are. You'd better take possession.' He handed over a sum of about four pounds ten shillings, but said nothing of the eight hundred pounds which he had stolen from Cook's belt. Later, Jones went to London and told Cook's relatives what had happened, and the stepfather, Mr. Stevens, grief-stricken, for he dearly loved the young fellow, went to Rugeley. That love aroused suspicion in Stevens, a suspicion which refused to be satisfied with the lying explanations of Palmer, and a post-mortem examination was insisted on, and was made in the assembly room of the hotel. And a strange examination it was, attended by, amongst others, Dr. Bamford, the landlord of the hotel, a solicitor named Savage Landor, a distant relation of mine, and about half a dozen townsmen. When the organs seemed healthy, Palmer exclaimed, I say, Bamford, they won't hang us yet. But he was intensely anxious to destroy all evidence of his villainy. The examination was made by a Dr. Devonshire, who had only carried out two before, helped by Newton, the chemist who had sold Palmer some of the strychnine, and knew nothing whatever about post-mortem work. When the stomach was being examined, Palmer deliberately pushed Devonshire's knife through it, so that nearly all the contents escaped, and later he cut a slit through the covering of the jar containing the organs to be sent to London for analysis, having managed to take the jar out of the room before the examination was finished. He offered the postboy who was to take the jar to the station ten pounds to smash it, and persuaded the postmaster, an old schoolfellow, 
to open the letter from Professor Taylor, the government analyst, containing the results of the analysis. This the foolish postmaster did, and later received two years' imprisonment for his outrageous offense. Palmer also sent the coroner, when the inquest was opened, generous presents of game and fish, and a ten-pound note. But all was in vain. The jury determined a verdict of willful murder against him, and at last the noose, so well deserved, was round his neck. It was fitting enough that this amazing case should culminate in an amazing trial. From first to last, Palmer never had the opportunity to open his mouth, as he would have today, and give his own version of what had happened. He was committed for trial on the coroner's warrant, after repeated sittings by the jury at the inquest. The police went to his bedroom, where he was ill, to arrest him, but it was three days before he could be removed. Then, in the dead of a December night, he was hurried off to Stafford Jail, just escaping the fury of a shouting crowd, which had waited twenty-four hours under his window for his removal. Later on, when Palmer had been taken to London for trial, a strong body of mounted troops was employed to escort him, such being the intensity of public feeling that ordinary police protection was considered insufficient. Palmer was never taken before any bench of magistrates, a strange circumstance which brought upon me a polite contradiction when I was in Stafford working up details of the case. I was told that this was most improbable, almost impossible. Yet when we adjourned to the county hall, where the old papers and documents were kept, I was proved correct, for the indictment had had the words, committing magistrate, erased, and the name of the coroner substituted. So strong and hostile was the local feeling against Palmer that there could be no hope of an impartial trial in Stafford. He had been a genial boon companion, and was a hypocritical churchgoer. But piece by piece his appalling crimes were revealed, and it was not too much to say that the whole country clamored for his death even before he had been tried. A special act of Parliament was passed, known as the Palmer Act, to enable the trial to take place at London, and that act has been used in other famous cases when it has been considered that local prejudice would bring about an unfair trial. Palmer was accordingly tried at the Old Bailey by three judges, Lord Chief Justice Campbell, Baron Alderson, and Mr. Justice Cresswell, and after a trial extending over a fortnight, a trial during which other high court judges actually went on to the Old Bailey to listen to the proceedings, so great was the universal interest in the case, the prisoner was found guilty and was sentenced to be hanged outside Stafford Jail. There is no doubt that the conviction was largely due to the skill and cleverness of the leading counsel for the Crown, Sir Alexander Cockburn, who afterwards became Lord Chief Justice. And Palmer himself realized this, for when he was being removed from the dock after his conviction, he observed to a bystander, using a sporting phrase, It's the riding that's done it. Palmer was taken to Euston Station, through the portals that still stand. He was handcuffed during the journey to Stafford, which was made in a first-class compartment, and, still further to lessen his chances of escape, one of his legs was manacled to the leg of one of the men who had charge of him. An enormous crowd assembled on that fine June morning to see the man meet his doom. He was buried in the yard of the jail, and, in accordance with a custom then prevailing at that particular prison, 
he was put into his grave naked and uncoffined. I possess a letter written by Palmer while under sentence of death, and I have one of many letters sent to him after his condemnation, especially by ladies, urging him to repent and make his peace with God. Pratt, the unspeakable scoundrel, died a raving madman not long after the execution, and the equally villainous lawyer, Jeremiah Smith, got his deserts pretty well, especially when he was under the ruthless cross-examination of Cockburn. That is a mere outline of the career of the most callous and notorious of modern English murderers. Even a summary of such a life leaves the impression that the criminal, so old in vice and iniquity, must have been a man of mature age. Yet when he met his shameful but most justly deserved death, Palmer was only thirty-one years old. End of chapter 8 Palmer's Poisonings